happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 171 on April 1st, 2020, or as I've heard some people describe it, March 32nd, because the month of March was uh, pretty long uh, in comparison to the other months. Um uh, this is the, uh, well, let me introduce myself. Apparently, I, apparently back in March too. My name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school, usually located on the fabulous University of Montana campus. I am, of course, joining you from my home, which I do usually, uh, on Wednesday nights, but I have not been in my office for the last three weeks, um, home quarantine due to COVID-19. And also joining me from his home, Good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer. How are you this evening? Good evening, Jason. I am good. Joining you from my new uh, remote learning headquarters here in our son's old room. Got the old Hardy Boys books there in case I need to grab one real quick. Uh, yeah, got the wooden sword ready, ready to go. So we are doing well sheltering in place, and I uh, am and I'm honestly enjoying the new schedule and the challenges that it that it poses, but they they are considerable. Yesterday morning, I had a great morning. I took breaks and I felt energized. Went on a walk. In the afternoon, I think I just worked solid. It was I did not take a break and and I was dead. So um, it is a challenge, but here we are. And as you were saying before the show started, this is a pandemic. So you know the sacrifices that those of us not in the medical profession and not having family members who are sick and affected by that are, you know, it's pretty small in comparison to the reality that some folks are in. But we're not going to just talk COVID-19, although we do have a number of articles. What are we going to do tonight? Well, the NX Situation Room is a weekly podcast where we discuss the news, as it were, uh, mostly about technology and kind of shoot it through the prism of, of K-12 education, uh, particularly in the United States. Obviously, the last several weeks have been dominated by COVID-19 news in that schools have faced, faced a somewhat unprecedented movement towards closing schools. A lot of schools have chosen to move online or do other digital solutions to help keep kids connected and, and learning along. And we're happy to go through uh, those bits of news. And I would say that I'm sure it's not a surprise and I'm stating the obvious, but the the coronavirus has definitely sucked the air out of most other technology news. In fact, um, it's mostly been about how big tech has been um, uh, impacting uh, 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 COVID. And Wes has actually moved to puppets now, the uh, the uh, as opposed to like interesting and new things. Uh, but we'll try to to move through some interesting news tonight. I think both. Wes and I have been probably uh, uh, kind of eagle-eyed about a lot of what's been going on in regards to the tech news, and I think we can hopefully provide some some perspective and some commentary tonight. So, Wes, where would you like to start this evening? Well, I know we're going to do some COVID-ish articles. In fact, for those of you not looking yet at the show notes, which you can find at edmontonstar.com slash links, uh, our titles or subtitles today are Connectivity, COVID-ish, Video conferencing, media literacy, thinking about students and privacy of the economy, security, and some good news before we have some geeks of the week. So I think I'd actually like to um, talk about security and an Ars Technica article that caught my eye. This is from today on April 1st. Microsoft Edge is becoming the browser you didn't know you needed. And Jason talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
The Microsoft Edge browser is now based on Chromium, which is the open source variant of Google Chrome. I have downloaded it and just played with it a little bit, but I am so invested in the Google ecosystem and Chrome and, you know, a lot of the things, Screencastify, Hangout Meets, those things work really well in Chrome that I I don't see myself moving from that. I use Safari on my iOS devices most of the time. But the thing that caught my eye in the article and I was really excited about is it has a live password monitor. So we've talked on the show about how services like LastPass and 1Password and other things They call them watchtowers and other things. And now Google has a password checker as well that will check your saved passwords against the databases of compromised passwords. And will also tell you things like, oh, you duplicated. You've used this one more than once. Oh, this is a weak password. But the uh, Edge browser from Microsoft kind of takes that uh, up another level to real time and as you create a password and enter it into a website, boom, it will immediately check it against that database and let you know. Now, I think that is still a beta feature and that may not, there was a number of things that were announced by Microsoft that were covered in that article that are not yet in the stable release for everybody. But I think that is a, a good thing. And uh, Dr. Neifer, will that convince you to abandon all Chrome things and you know love Microsoft all day long? Well, uh, interesting you should mention that because I did do something yesterday. I had um, uh, uh, cloud uh, cloud ready from Neverware installed on my um, my major home PC. I've got a, a, a it, I is a gaming machine I bought in 2015. That's actually still pretty nice because it's got an i7 chip and 32 gigs of RAM in it. But the um, the reason why I put Windows back on here was that I was hoping to be able to do a little more recording of screencasts and such in, in the coming weeks. And there's just a little more production quality I can do on Windows. But um, the first thing I did install was the new Edge browser, which I think is a nice quality browser. I'm spending most of my time in Chrome right now because that's where most of my, my powerful tool sets located. But I think that Edge has a lot of possibility in becoming the power user's browser. It's available on Mac and PC, which is interesting. At some point, there's going to be a Linux version available for it, I have read, which means that I can then install it on um, um, uh, on uh, uh, Chrome OS. Thank you very much, right? Which means I can, via the, the Linux interface that's now available in modern uh, Chromebooks, I can then install it there. And that's suddenly very interesting to me because of that notion of extensibility, which we've talked about in the past through plugins, which all of the Chrome OS plugins work on Edge. I think this was a really smart move on Microsoft's part, and I like the feel of Edge. I mean, I, it feels like Chrome to me, but with Microsoft-style enhancements, but the fact that they're working towards a more secure browser, and they're kind of cornering that market, right? That's something Microsoft's been spending a lot of attention to. I think that's pretty smart. Awesome. I think you put another security article in, perhaps. Um, I, I did, as a matter of fact, I believe. Um, Nope, that was you. Yeah, the Forbes one. Okay, so uh, this is from March 26th. Before I read this, I got a a phone call, which I don't actually take very many phone calls these days, uh, but it was uh, Forbes calling that I had been selected to be part of, I don't know, something that sounded really fancy and nice, and they wanted me to write for them in this tech group. But and I was like, okay. Um, And I actually, I got an email and I responded, and then we set up a call. But like, you know, Five minutes into the call, and he says, yes, and then the annual fee is da-da-da. I had no idea about this. So companies and individuals 
are selected. There's like thousands of people who do this to write for Forbes. And you can talk about your company, talk about all kinds of things. They help edit your articles. But basically, you pay to play to write on Forbes. Anyway, so I was just I had not even know that existed. Perhaps this is an article that is not fitting into that category. But uh, this article uh, talks about the Chrome browser, uh, although it wasn't actually the Chrome browser. It was a trick. So this could go under media literacy. The title is Hackers Trick Thousands into Downloading Dangerous Chrome Update. And so basically hackers, um, you know, were wanting to put a backdoor on people's systems. And so they uh, tricked people into thinking that there was a fake uh, Chrome update. And, um, you know, they, uh, it was a, what was it called? Predator in Thief. It's been active for 18 months. And um, anyway, it was a keylogger and a sophisticated Russian-based data stealer. It was a pretty, pretty bad thing. And, um, you know, what Google and the Chrome folks reminded is that, hey, Chrome automatically updates itself. And, you know, you can always check and see what kind of uh, what version you're running by just going up to Chrome and choosing about Google Chrome. Uh, it's going to check for updates, show you your version there. And uh, in the very unlikely case that you're not, um, you know, running the latest, then it will it will update right then. But anyway, that was a another example of social engineering and the ways that people are going to try and trick trick us every possible way they can to clicking on something that is malicious. So um, I don't know. It seems it seems that user education about that kind of thing, and I, I, I'm not sure how we're going to transcend that in a world of hyperlinks where we want to click things and, and benefit from what is the foundation of the web that is being able to click a link and go to a, a different page, different resource somewhere else. Um, that has That has been, you know, it, it, it continues to be a big challenge, and I don't see a solution to this, you know, on the horizon. Hey, we've got a, a live viewer, Travis Carlson, and he said that two of the teachers, I guess, that he works with had put that on their laptops. And so, yeah, I mean, there were thousands of people who actually ended up putting that on. So I would guess that, Dr. Neifer, you were not you were not seduced by the malware invitation. I wasn't, but I will tell you, I think those get more sophisticated, uh, sophisticated every single day, right? When flash updates were a little more precarious back in the day, um, I did get as far as clicking on a couple of, of the ones on the Mac that took you to a malware site. I was able to recognize it from there, but yeah. And, and, you know, I gotta say, uh, all the evidence about, um, uh, uh, all the evidence about uh, the increase in home usage of laptops over this time, people working at home sometimes for the first time, they may or may not be within the protective layer of their IT department, uh, depending on how uh, the laptops are managed in your organization, and you're going to see an increase in this. And in fact, something I've noticed personally is that um, I've received quite a bit of um, uh, Twitter uh, uh, messenger spam, right? People's accounts have been hacked and sent us uh, commercial links that uh, you know take you to sites that either install malware or advertising based. And also, the number of scam calls I'm getting on my my personal cell phone has increased somewhat dramatically in in the last uh, ten days or so. I've noticed that, and that's after you know almost a year and a half of a slow decrease in those numbers due to more aggressive uh, laws in the United States. Those are suddenly starting to increase again. And for the record, internet, I do not have a warranty expiring on my Jeep since I do not own a Jeep. So in case anyone's curious about that, uh, that's the way that goes. So. All right. Where to next? 
Uh, well, let's uh, talk about one other generic uh, article, and then we could jump into kind of COVID-related news. Uh, today, April 1st, and this was not an April Fool's Day joke. In fact, there was a, a distinct lack of April Fool's Day jokes today, I think very much by design in light of the current situation. But T-Mobile and Sprint announced that the merger is complete. Um, the current CEO of T-Mobile stepped down, largely credited. I can't remember John's last name because I just think of it as John. But John, the CEO, is no longer CEO oh. anymore. Yep. Oh. He's not the CEO anymore. No, he stepped down today um, okay. because he uh, – well, he was going to as part of the merger anyways, but uh, I think the COO was was uh, 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 given the, the nod there for the CEO position. But uh, Sprint and T-Mobile are, are, are one company now. And I know there's a lot of controversy about this. I can say personally that I think this is a good thing, right? Like uh, Sprint wasn't very much a factor in very many places, but I keep dreaming of this notion of maybe a very expanded network that's on both the CDMA and the GSM because Sprint is a CDMA uh, technology that like Verizon, but could create some interesting uh, points there. But I'd be looking forward to see if this decreases competition, uh, which means increased prices, or in the long term, this means even better deals and full disclosure both Wes and I are extremely happy T-Mobile customers and I have never been happier with a technology shift than when I moved away from my previous carrier to T-Mobile awesome all right well there is a there are a number of articles that we put under the COVID-ish uh, headline and um, I think I think I want to mention PBS Learning Media first. So sure. our State Department of Education has partnered with the local PBS affiliate OETA. That's the link that I have directly. And I think it'll probably redirect and ask you, you know, who you're, where you are, what your local affiliate is. But I was working with a teacher today as I am, I've installed Calendly or set that up so that folks can, are, that I'm, are, on our staff, our teachers can book like 15 minute or 30 minute sessions with me. It is working awesome. You know, it, it's just, it's great. So anyway, I'm, it's kind of, it's actually the, the best kind. It's, it's being able to sort of teleport immediately back and forth between people's houses and then have them share their screens and getting to help them, you know, with their support. It's, it's actually pretty amazing. Uh, I think I'm providing more intense levels of technology support and just-in-time support for folks that I, that I ever have at our school. But one of the, the conversations I had today uh, regarded the PBS Learning Media Resources. And so these are integrated with Google Classroom. And so you log in, create a, an account, say that you're a teacher, but then there's a nice little icon that says add to Google Classroom. And so then that will, you know, create an assignment right in your Google Classroom, put the links to the videos. The one thing I would comment on is in the case of one of the assignments we looked at, and this was one of the questions they had, it was a PDF and it said, this is a worksheet, you know, all the kids can, ed can edit it. And I was like, hmm, how's that going to work? Because usually we'll create a PDF or sorry, we'll create a Google document or a Google slideshow and then students will edit that because it, it automatically did the thing where it gives everyone a copy. So, uh, Dr. Neifer, I would throw that to you. You all probably know that better than I. I mean, I've used Doc Hub. It only has a limited number of edits that you can do. Is there a good way for, for folks to be, well, I mean, actually, I, I guess I have a geek of the week that relates to it, but what would you recommend in that situation when a student or a teacher wants his or her students to edit a PDF worksheet and then turn that in? Right. I mean, you can make PDFs. I mean, and this takes a lot of kind of PDF. I mean, I'll call it Adobe Foo to make this happen. Right. But you can definitely create fillable 
uh, uh, worksheets and PDF that's saved, but it's been my general experience that those are not as universal across PDF readers, right? So if you are, if you got the actual Adobe PDF reader or the full Adobe Acrobat is the name of the suite that makes PDFs from Adobe, um, or some of the better readers, like I, I, my preference is the Foxit reader. That's the one I use on Windows and on Mac because it's got a lot of features for free that, that, that you'd have to have a, a commercial Adobe software to do. I'm sure you can do that. I'm just not sure if that would be the way I would, I would choose to do that, right? If I'm in the Microsoft architecture, I would use Office 365. If I was in the Google ar- architecture, I would use Google Docs for that. Or if I had none of the above, I would simply create a Word document template that I could share with kids. But, you know, I got to say, I, I I can't believe I, I'm saying this uh, in 2020, but I'm pretty regularly impressed with what you can do with a PDF because there are a lot of fancy ways that you can create them that, that it make them way more useful than they used to be. Fantastic. What else? Uh, let's see here. Well, I maybe we'll uh, because this conversation's been I challenging to me, I guess, is the way I would describe it. But let's talk a little bit about um, the uh, FBI warning regarding online classes and video conferencing. So um, the FBI announced this was yesterday yesterday that. Uh, they were concerned about what is oftentimes referred to now, and it's a shame the brand name's involved in this, but it's called Zoom jacking, um, which is you uh, have a, an online meeting, and it doesn't matter really what technology that you're in, and I think Zoom is getting the brunt of this because of the mass increase in the number of people using Zoom, but Zoom, GoToMeeting, uh, Google Meets, um, uh, Google Hangouts, if you use GoToMeeting, if you use WebEx, if you use... Um, Blackboard Collaborate. I mean, there's there's tons of different software suites that work here. But the the idea here is that if you get Zoom jacked, someone jumps in your room and, um, you know, is an obnoxious bad person. Right. It's been everything from people engaged in in racist tirades uh, to people that have shown pornography or nudity uh, to like elementary school classrooms and yada, yada, yada. And I want to be really clear here that this is a concern, but a lot of the hate that's being kind of showered here is mostly above uh, uh, video conferencing tools, specific tools that this 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 or that, uh, you know, is a risk. Um, but the reason why I want to mention this article is because if you're new to uh, the video conferencing world and you're trying to connect with students that way or try to do live uh, asynchronous learning that way, and you're not thinking through how you're using the tool, absolutely, yes, it is, uh, you know, it's potentially hijackable, right? In the same way that we don't allow physical school buildings, we don't unlock all the doors and keep all the doors open during the day and allow the, the, the public to wander through because people may abuse that. You also want to treat your virtual classroom the same way. So as an example of this, there's been a lot of documents around, but Zoom, for example, if you just use the default Zoom room, especially if you're using the free version, the, cor- the corporate paying version is infinitely more powerful than the free version of Zoom. But if you are um, um, in a Zoom meeting and you've posted the link publicly and you've not locked down the Zoom meeting to either require a password or force you to admit individual users, 
someone could just jump into your meeting. And I've I've seen instances and heard stories and accounts of people that posted, uh, for example, a screenshot of a Zoom meeting. Their nine digit ID number for the meeting was visible in a link or somewhere in a browser. And then suddenly, um, you know, they're using the same room over and over again. And some creeper decides that they're going to jump into your meeting. So the thing I would encourage you to do and you should contact the tech savvy folks in your district in the same way that West provides uh, a support to his teachers to talk through what is your video conferencing solution. If you don't have one, think through the free ones to make sure it's doing what you want it to do. And then more importantly, if you're paying for one, be sure that you're doing at least minimum uh, uh, professional development on it before you roll it out and experiment with it a little bit and, and not just, you know, uh, try it uh, because it's a tool that's available, especially when you're utilizing this with kids. So, Wes, what does this look like for you? So a couple things. First off, uh, a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine was, I think, using Ustream, but it was a, a, a broadcasting uh, tool. And I think he had, he had tweeted out the link. And so he had tweeted out basically an administrator presenter link. And so anyway, somebody who was not supposed to be there, you know, saw that on Twitter and jumped in and it wasn't, it wasn't horrific, but it was certainly disruptive. And it was an example of how we've got to be careful. Um, we are having, I think, really, really good conversations at our school around software and apps and the importance that we have uh, really to, to put some things in some different categories. Um, in one category, maybe you can give me some feedback, Jason, on what you would call this or other people can tell and say, well, how do you handle this in your district? But like there's certain things that are core applications that everyone has to use. So we're a, a Google school. So email is Gmail. You know, teachers cannot go to kids and say, hey, you know, I love AOL back in the day. Can, can, is, is there is still an AOL account or Hotmail? I mean, they can't do that. We use a system called Gaggle that provides some safety filtering for, for email. We don't allow email for, you know, kids that are fifth grade or third, fourth grade and under. They get that at fifth grade. But there's certain things like that. And I think the calendar, you know, we, we don't, we haven't in the past required that everybody, you know, maintain their Google calendar, but certainly with email we do. And now in this time of remote learning, you know, live video conferencing, especially for our middle and our high school has become a staple. I mean, it is something that's happening all the time. So Google Hangouts meets has Hangouts meet has been the recommended platform. Um, but we do have some teachers using Zoom and I use Zoom today in a call. It was so cool. I was able to make that my background, even with a, a bright because it was during the day, like Lord of the Rings, baby. I mean, someone else in the call was in Rivendell. I had the, the whole fellowship, you know, walking across behind me. I mean, it was cool. And thankfully, with, with Hangout Meets, um, there's some extensions that have made it even better. There's one called the Grid extension that sort of zoomifies it, allows you to see everybody. But there are important issues when we use tools, especially with students, to deliver instruction and to interact. We have to protect their privacy. Uh, we're requiring teachers to record all of the sessions. So, for instance, when you use Google Hangout Meets, that recording immediately goes into your Google Drive. We're doing this to protect everybody that's involved. Um, but, you know, not every... I'm, I have the word innovation in my title, right? I'm a technology integration and innovation specialist. So I absolutely want to support innovation. 
Um, but, but, but we need to be having these conversations, uh, for a lot of different reasons. One of them does involve support as well. When something goes wrong, it, you know, if it, it's different, if we're kind of enhancing our lesson with something or trying something, but if it's like a core thing, like, Hey, this is how I'm communicating with you every day. I mean, that system has to be supported by the school. And so I think we're having good conversations about it. In fact, our, our, uh, technology manager and I have been connecting this week and are working on a list to try to come up with this because, uh, again, we, we want to support innovation and we do provide a lot of autonomy for our teachers, but we need to protect the school and we need to have an eye for things like, you know, security. Uh, how is information being shared? And we've talked about this on the show before. When a product is free, oftentimes we are the product. And so students are not supposed to be the product in the same way that an adult can be. That's what COPA and FERPA and other kinds of laws, part of what they do is protect student privacy, student data records, student confidentiality. And so we are in a pandemic. It is important not to, you know, because I've, as I commented to our technology manager, like if this is the biggest technology issue we have, like we have so many awesome video conferencing platforms, um, you know, that, that work. Uh, and the challenge is, are we going to, you know, kind of pick one and standardize. I mean, that's not a, a terrible problem to have, but it is, it's, it's leading to good conversations and probably like all school districts and schools. I mean, we're talking about passwords, how many different kinds of digital curriculum we have. Are we using single sign on? And then that conversation is also like, what is our platform? And this, it's also important for the families. I'll tell another quick story. Our, our middle daughter is a freshman. She took a gap year. She's, at the University of Central Oklahoma, which, like most schools, has just gone online. In fact, she had to move out of the, her dorm by yesterday. Um, uh, my wife and, and she got, got her moved out on the weekend. Her teachers have been all over the place. In fact, one of them used StreamYard today, she said, uh, and, and I think went to YouTube Live. But she's been on, um, I mean, at least three or four different platforms. And so in a time of crisis, people are going to need to, to do what they can but it is important for schools to look at the, the variety of issues that surround platform use to include student privacy and confidentiality, but then also, you know, being able to provide support. And so I think there's a balance to be struck there. So what, how have you seen that play out, Jason, when schools needed to kind of strike a balance between standardization and having single platforms and then wanting teachers to be innovative and try different things? Well, I mean, I think part of it for me that has been super interesting is that, um, some districts are some districts were prepared for this and some districts were not. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think that in a lot of cases um, we will need to talk about what this looks like after the fact. And one of the things I'm really encouraging people to do is don't I mean, now is not the time to evaluate critically what we're doing yet. Right. Like, I think we need to wait until we're largely through this crisis um, and things are a little more back to normal. And then we have to have some really hard conversations about access, about equity, about uh, uh, district uh, decisions in regards to technology. And I'm not saying that that I mean, there are some people on Twitter that are calling that this is the time for all this educational change and yada, yada, yada. I don't disagree with that notion from the standpoint that we can have some conversations about this. and Maybe we can end up in, in a better place with education than we were before. But we have to find a way to get through the current crisis the best we can and then evaluate what the future uh, might look like and what lessons we might learn from 
from that. And I think exactly what you're asking, that balance between, you know, we need to maintain student safety at the same time that, um, uh, uh, well, student safety and, and a variety of things, really, uh, uh, accessibility to, to various tools, yada, 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 uh, with the notion that, uh, you know, we want teachers to go out there and explore, right? Probably your exploration-based teachers that made so much difference in this in the first place, maybe brought these tools to your district to start off with. You know, I lean a little more towards uh, uh, safety, privacy than I did maybe before I was in an administrative position, in part because, you know, um, it... Uh, asking for forgiveness doesn't always work, right? Which, uh, early career, uh, Jason Knifer teacher guy, uh, probably would, would just be like right now, like, how dare you, uh, 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 with that. But, you know, there's a balance to be maintained there. I think part of it, and, and we've talked about this a lot in the past, it really does mean dialogue with teachers, uh, uh, and administration inside your district. You should all be on the same board no matter what that answer is, but the only way you're going to do that is through conversation. Well, we need to recognize, and I'm saying this after being our technology director at our school for four years, when you're not paying for a tool, you basically have no recourse if something goes wrong, if you need to get data, if you because you're just on a free consumer account. And so uh, yeah. actually we have looked into and are getting a quote for Zoom to say, hey, what would this look like if we got X amount of licenses or whatever? You know, even with Google, which Google is phenomenal. Um, I mean, we have signed contracts with them as a, as a Google, um, you know, G Suite for Education uh, organization, and and because of that, you know, they have some contractual obligations with us in terms of tech support, and we can get some direct tech support. And I've worked issues, uh, multiple issues regarding security and and users and situations. And because of that relationship, we we are able to access that. So I think that districts need to be asking these questions to your point, Jason, that yes, we, we're going to need to get through this, but at the same time, like, I don't think you want everybody to go set up their own email accounts and just everybody's on a different platform. I really do think there are certain things that are going to be core and you're going to decide this. It's sort of like I'm a, I taught elementary math. And so common denominators are a big thing for fractions, right? You're going to have certain common denominators that are going to be with everyone. And so, you know, what's happened dramatically in the last couple of weeks is that where, where email and maybe a calendar or some other things were, were like that. Now video conferencing is like that. And so um, it is a good opportunity, though, for, for, for dialogue. And it's a chance to to compare features and, and also to, to develop digital literacy. Right. Because um, these different tools have different affordances and different benefits. But at the end of the day, you know, what we want is to be able to have an interactive conversation. And I I throw this in because I've had a chance to be able to share this in several video conferences. I love being able to have a check in question where the, ne the one next person tags someone else, because I think a, an interactive video conference where everyone doesn't get to talk at least once is a yeah. fail. And I think as teachers and administrators, we need to think about how many people do you want to have in that call? Because if you start to get over, you know, even 10 to 15, I mean, it, it, it can be more time consuming to be able to have everyone talk. So anyway, I think uh, there's a lot of good learning happening around video conferencing now. And I think that, um, you know, interestingly, Zoom hasn't offered anything free. I don't I don't I don't think. Have you seen any kind of offers that they've had to? Um, other than their 40 minute free class? I, I think that Zoom, this was on their blog a couple of weeks ago. I think Zoom is allowing, um, 
or is offering uh, through the end of the school year to update individual accounts to the to the education version, right? Which I think diminishes the advertising piece you talked about before, and and that was part of their commitment. And to be frank, I'm surprised Zoom is still running. I mean, the fact that that a lot of these tools have increased, you know, by a, a, a term of magnitude their usage in the last three weeks. The fact that most of them are still standing is pretty impressive and a testament to 2020 uh, cloud-based computing, right? But the thing that I think is super interesting to me is that. Um, there, I, if you're, to quote you earlier, if you are using a free product, then you are indeed the thing that's being sold, right? That, that things need money to develop, to pay for service, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to balance out, right? Like, you know, it's one thing if you use this to create media and you watch advertising, it's another one if you subject students to that. In fact, in a lot of cases, that's literally against the law to do that, depending on your jurisdiction, uh, asking students for a grade to sign into something that doesn't have a privacy policy aimed at people under the age of, particularly if you're dealing with students under the age of 13, it's problematic. And I, I do think we will probably have some conversations about this before it's all said and done, uh, uh, about how privacy did during this time, but it's certainly something interesting to think about, especially if you're experimenting right now as part of what you're doing um, in, in your new distance learning classroom. I'll drop this into the show notes, but this is uh, Forbes from March 13th. Exclusive Zoom CEO Eric Wan is giving K-12 schools his video conferencing tools for free. And so, yes, there's a form available. You put your school email address in, and then you've got unlimited temporary meeting minutes. Um, so, anyway, it's it is. It's a powerful tool. Um, what is your favorite video conferencing tool right now, Dr. Neifer, when you're going to be conferencing with uh, either an individual or a group? It's Zoom. Um, the University of Montana has a, a site license for that for all faculty and staff. So I have a, a industrial Zoom available to me. Previous to that was actually GoToMeeting. Um, GoToMeeting was uh, the de facto standard for our organization for nearly eight years before the campus moved to Zoom. Um, uh, GoToMeeting just got a nice, easy interface. And I, the, especially the earlier versions of things like WebEx and uh, Collaborate, just always felt finicky to me and then it required a lot of kind of jumping through uh, digital hoops to be able to do simple things. Whereas go to meeting and now zoom for that matter seem to be a little more simple, but uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tools. Uh, Microsoft has teams meet uh, and also some versions of Skype. Google is offering Google meet um, and also has some, some different tools, including hangouts that you can get on with smaller groups. There's lots of options out there. Um, but you know, I, I think, Part of it is just thinking about the way to adopt them and, uh, you know, run through them, test them, think about it. So I'll, I'll do three quick ones uh, while we can finish up this video conferencing title. Um, I put a link to an article that's one year and one day old. Uh, I wrote this on my blog on March 31st, 2019. Google Mesh Home Wi-Fi makes our Internet access much faster. Literally, we've got four of us now remote learning, a college student, a 10th grader, a third grade teacher and a, a fifth and sixth grade teacher, you know, supporting our faculty. And like there was there was a point today where I think we were all on together. So that is extraordinary. Um, they, the, the Cox cable connection that, that we've been paying for is not the, the ultimate. There's there's one that's like gigablast, but we have like 300 megs down and 30 megs up. 
but it has held up super well. And so I would just definitely encourage anyone who is having any kind of challenges at home, you may not need to change the internet that you're paying for from your provider, but the kind of Wi-Fi that you have, and if your Wi-Fi is is certainly five years or older, older, but even if it's older than maybe two or three years, the new Wi-Fi, we were looking at Eero or uh, what was now, what was, what's now called Google Nest Wi-Fi. It was just Google Wi-Fi then. And it, it's extraordinary. We have three of these access points and, you know, it, it just made a dramatic difference. And so this is a great time to look at that. And that can be expensive. I think that cost us in the ballpark of $270 to have these three access points, but I mean, worth every penny. And we are, we are literally like, that's that's air and water for us right now is the bandwidth and the connectivity. And I'll say there's a lot of families struggling that with struggling with that right now because we've heard from those families. Um, we need to be sensitive, both as teachers and administrators, to how many live events we're asking, you know, kids and, and teachers to be involved with. Asynchronous video that you don't have to be there at that exact time is much more flexible. And we've continued to encourage our teachers to predominantly have activities and lessons that are asynchronous, but there is a lot of live going on. And so I know that is a struggle in uh, many homes. In addition, I put an article to a blog post that I wrote last night uh, called sharing audio from videos during a video conference. And uh, I, I need to, I, I got a little feedback from Jason before we started. In fact, hey, let's try the little screen share and see if this works. Um, yeah, huh, that's interesting. It says this works best with two monitors. So I'm going to share my screen and what I want to, oh wow, isn't that wild? Uh, I just want to share this window. This is Audio Hijack Pro. And so if I wanted to play a video, which I'm not doing right now, I can turn this on and this can either, right now it's set to system audio. I can have that just be the Chrome browser, but this is a merging program, which merges two audio channels from my computer and then my microphone. And it actually does I hope some helpful equalization, but it sends it out as a single, as a single stream there. And so anyway, I wrote a blog post about that that is in the show notes. And, um, again, if you, if you're teaching and you want to be sharing video, it might be something that you can just have students watch before, but sometimes, and I'm doing this in webinars sometimes now, I want to actually play a video. And then the very last one that I thought I would mention is the New York Times on March 25th, how to look your best on a webcam. So really all you need to do is watch Dr. Neifer in EdTech SR and you'll, you'll learn everything you need, but there's a New York Times article to help you with that as well. What, what did they say as options? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to be doing to look more beautiful? <laughs> well, it's kind of, it's some basic, basic things about lighting and backlighting and, you know, uh, professional, sure. professional dress. And I don't think there's anything that's too radical, but people may, may not have had to think about all of those kinds of things. And, you know, you, you typically always see Jason and I with, uh, with earbuds or headphones on and, um, you know, it's my microphones and things like that. There's, you can always spend a lot of money. Unfortunately, there are, we are in Mac on MacBook airs. I'm very thankful that our faculty have Mac airs at this point yeah. have, you know, reasonably good microphones. You can plug your earbuds into those and, and have those work. So, Anyway, it was just, it was some more general tips for that. But these are things we haven't necessarily had to think about. And going back to what Jason, I think, has said in the last two episodes, don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. I think, is that how you said that? Yep. Basically, what you're going to do is going to be good enough for your kids. And so um, 
yes, there are ways that we can try to refine and improve and, and, you know, get the quality up of, of what we're doing. But, you know, what, what you're doing is going to reach your students. And just as, uh, you know, they're going to hopefully have grace for you. You need to have grace for yourself. Right. In the whole process. Yeah. And speaking of that, I think that, you know, the other thing, too, that, that I'm seeing some evidence of, too, is that uh, there's a lot of kind of snap decision making that's going into a lot of these kind of shifts, whether you're going to online, you're going to remote teaching, you're going to packets, whatever your district strategy is. And I speaking of grace, I think you need to offer um, your teachers a lot of grace when you're in a leadership position. And I think that you need to offer your administrators a lot of grace. Um, if you um, are, are in a teaching position, the same is true of, of all the other actors that make schools go round, that it's just it's, it's a tough time for everyone. And um, I, I mentioned this a little bit pre-show to, to Wes. I'm starting to notice that some of the arguments are getting a little more aggressive on social media uh, between teachers. Uh, we all have strong opinions about the right ways and wrong ways to educate kids. I have no doubt that we'll have some great discussions about this, uh, especially in the medium and long term. But we got to stay in each other's teams right now. Um, I know hundreds of teachers that I've connected with in some way, shape or form in the last couple of weeks. And you're all doing great. You're working your your your, your tush off um, and you're doing great work. And I hope we can take positive things from this. But if nothing else, you all stepped up for your kids. And that's what's important. What about this great unwinding by the New York Times? You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, so interesting article from the New York Times that talked particularly about startups and how a lot of startups uh, ha- really have lost a lot of steam in the last three weeks. The economy's tanking. Retail sales outside of, of groceries are down. Um, there's a lot of, of, of reasons why the economy could be heading, be tanking, but it's kind of exposing the weak underbelly of the economy when it comes to the, the spaces that some people consider to be the most innovative, and that's uh, technology-driven startups. And the thing that I want us to start thinking about a little bit, and, and, and I hope you, 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 you are thinking about this as well, we're obviously going to get through this crisis at, at, at a point, and whether you believed that the uh, health benefits of social distancing and shutting down states was worth it or not, we can all agree that this is going to have a terrible impact on our economy. There's obviously uh, uh, we are heading to the conditions of a recession. Um, we will need uh, two quarters worth of, of, of uh, stagnant or negative growth to be able to uh, say that for sure by traditional economic definitions. There's been a lot of, of economists and political commentators that have used the D word uh, to talk about what's going on. Uh, you may remember in 2008, we decided, uh, someone, we decided, someone decided that it was the Great Recession was a way to describe that massive economic downturn as to not use the D word to describe what was going on. The thing I would say, though, is that obviously some things are going to change here pretty quickly, and it's not entirely clear uh, who is going to be able to weather the storm and who's not. Um, I'm personally pulling a lot for local businesses. I know so many of them, including businesses amongst my family. My mom owns a quilt shop that is down to a single employee that just does, literally does pickups at the door for people that, that maybe, uh, you know, have a lot of time at home, uh, but may also be, be health-wise uh, somewhat frail. Uh, that's a that's a way their business is staying in play. But I just, you know, be, be keeping an eye on that. It could impact, um, you know, uh, Zoom is a good example of this. I know they, that they've been uh, uh, increasing dramatically their business. 
But, you know, also Zoom has been taking a lot of hits in the jaw uh, the last couple of weeks when it comes to, you mentioned, privacy policies and, you know, what works and what doesn't and what's available and what's not in regards to the tech. Um, obviously, uh, the, whether they weather this or not, I'm sure they probably will because I happen to like the product and they seem to be making changes in real time. Um, but we'll see. So just something to keep in mind that that uh, this could impact Beyond what it could do for schools in regards to discussions, beyond what it could do for, for public health in regards to discussions, the economy will have a massive impact on, on how the next couple of years go just because of, of what dramatically has changed in the last 30 days. I'd like to hit a couple of uh, media literacy articles. Uh, this one is from The Telegraph on March 26th. It's titled, COVID Deniers, How Shadowy Social Media Groups Are Spreading Myths and Conspiracy About Coronavirus. Um, uh, they're talking about well, I'll read the first couple of paragraphs. Two weeks ago, an anti-vaccine Facebook group called We Brought Vax to the UK started to disseminate a new and dangerous contagion, misinformation about COVID-19. Its posts promote xenophobia, conspiracy theories, and erroneous medical information about the disease and how it might be treated. One post claimed China was using the outbreak to cull the elderly. Another suggested hand sanitizer causes cancer and a probiotic yogurt suppository was recommended as a cure. The group is just one of some 50 social media accounts being tracked by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, CCDH, a charity dedicated to preventing false and divisive lies and myths spreading across the web. So we've talked about this a lot on the show. I am absolutely convinced that media literacy needs to be a centerpiece of what we're talking about in every school, in every grade. It can't just be something, you know, that's over on the side that, hey, that's Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so's job to talk about. It's like character education. Literacy has changed. We get the predominant amount and quantity of our of our information today from digital sources. And so uh, this is a good article. It's it's sobering, but it's important, I think, for us to remind, uh, depending upon the age of our students, of course, um, you know, remind our colleagues and talk about how are we developing our critical thinking skills, our ability to uh, gauge what it is that we want to believe and also what it is that we want to share. And then there's one other article that was under that media literacy heading on tonight's show notes. This is from the Mozilla blog on March 25th, and it's called COVID-19 and what platforms are doing to limit the spread of misinformation. And this one specifically deals with Facebook. And I know with so much headlines around COVID, you know, we may be missing a lot of other things that are going on. I listened uh, to it. I think it was uh, today explained podcast in the last couple of days about some testimony that was given before the United States Senate, not by the CEOs of the tech firms, but by uh, their legal representatives and I think other maybe public affairs spokespeople uh, talking about, you know, history as far as 2016 election and some of the things that they allowed to happen. Um, there are a number of things that they are trying to do to try and, and have, you know, more guidelines and requirements, trying to fact check and remove things. But, um, you know, there there are posts that are going viral that have split through uh, Facebook's fact-checking and removal procedures. Um, you know, it, it, this continues to be a battle, and uh, their three recommendations at the end are are pretty good. Uh, number one, think before you share. You know, don't share health information that's not from a reputable source like the CDC, the WHO, the uh, NHS. Fact-check. Uh, if you're seeing someone else share information that's false, I mean, this is saying share a link to accurate information. We've talked about how that doesn't always change people's views. Um, but then report. 
Uh, Facebook and other platforms have means of reporting disinformation and just like on YouTube where you can flag a video. And that kind of user submitted feedback is really important to the platform. Uh, it's important in other places as well. And I don't know if we've talked about that as kind of a good citizen behavior, right? If I'm a good citizen, I'm not only uh, doing my best not to spread disinformation and lies, but I'm also using tools on Facebook, on YouTube, on other platforms to flag things if I see something that, you know, is, uh, you know, not meeting community guidelines, you know, inappropriate is something that would be uh, disinformation. So Dr. Neifer is, uh, are you ready to give up your day job and apply to Facebook so that you can solve the disinformation crisis facing I'm not quite there yet, but I can't uh, can't stress enough the 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 importance of your message, Wes, about teaching media literacy during these times. And I'm a social studies teacher by training, so this was always a big part of my shtick. Uh, you know, there are incredible historical lessons uh, related to bias, and obviously, the situation in the 1770s was a little different than the situation in 2020 when it becomes or when it comes to the fact that anyone can be published uh, in, in with a worldwide audience. Within seconds of getting on the internet, but uh, also this is a way to also you know have meaningful discussions about the current situation in the world, um, while adding a, a, not just a, a, a discussion component to it, but maybe some some food for thought for kids later. And you know, I will say that that. Uh, um, I obviously have very strong beliefs about uh, the public health response to this. I'm an immunosuppressed American, which is a term I just made up, but I have a suppressed immunity. I've talked about this in the past because I am a kidney transplant recipient, so I take a cocktail of drugs that means I'm easy to pick up things. So I certainly believe that taking a more aggressive approach here is better than taking a less aggressive approach. But there are a lot of people that make claims in both directions of this, and we need to empower our students to make sure that they are their own fact-checking machines. And remembering, it's just not good enough anymore to say, go research on the Internet. Uh, there is an incredible diversity of sources, a healthy percentage of which is not valid or in any way intended to be an informational source. It's intended to be kind of a, a opinion and disinformation hiding as news. So uh, now is, is, is as important a time as ever searching on the internet is not an information retrieval activity. It is a critical thinking activity and should always be treated as such. Absolutely. Well, we are approaching the top of the hour. Any other articles you want to, what's this Montana masks? Can you talk about that quickly? Sure. I'd love to, because I want to give a shout out to one of, of, of our teachers at the, at the digital Academy, uh, who her name is Buffy Smith. She is a computer science teacher at Helena high school in Helena, Montana. And she let me, uh, uh into a, uh, a project that she was involved in that an engineer in Bozeman, Montana designed a 3d printable mask, medical mask that can be utilized with replaceable cartridges. And the mask itself, this is from the Billings Gazette, yesterday's Billings Gazette, which is the uh, paper of record in the largest city in Montana. Um, they, they open source the design. They upload it to the Internet. It has now been downloaded in 164 countries. And I know that Buffy and other teachers in the Helena School District were using school-based 3D printers tw literally 24 hours a day in the past week to print out 
hundreds of these masks, including a large uh, order of them for uh, an eye doctor in Helena. Obviously, uh, they weren't a priority for PPD um, because I'm sorry, PPE, as I've been corrected a couple of times, uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, and yet they're still having patients in and want to protect their staff. And so they ordered a, a, a large chunk of these masks from this open source pattern that was uh, was printed by Helena School District teachers. And they are now in use helping protect employees in this eye clinic. And these have been used all over the place, actually, uh, uh, to some positive effect. So, um, you know, again, more evidence of teachers stepping up to, to figure out this strategy. Were students involved in the design or was it a teacher that did that? Uh, well, I think actually it was an engineer, if I'm understanding correctly. So an engineer in Bozeman. Bozeman is kind of our high tech corridor in Montana um, and uh, did it, but then uploaded it as an open source pattern um, uh, to the Internet where it was then downloaded and then replicated, you know, uh, millions of times. So here, here. Man, that is fantastic. I'm, I'm tweeting that. Um, we're, uh, we're in a Sunday school class that uh, has gone virtual, of course, the last uh, couple of weeks. And uh, one of our members is a pharmacist and she's working in hospital every day. And last Sunday she was saying that, you know, the situation with masks is, is pretty dire. Uh, a friend of mine who's, whose girlfriend is actually in Stillwater, was was asked that was told that she was going to need to share masks and she's a nurse at their hospital. Um, so anyway, the the uh, friend in our Sunday school class um, had found a DIY uh, mask, uh, uh, not, not recipe, but basically instructions for how to make masks. And they're not the ones that a medical professional. It's going to be, you know, absolutely preventing you know you from uh, from contracting COVID nineteen, but. It is something that can be given to families. And so there are a number of people who are making these and, you know, families who, um, I mean, I was in the ER for a kidney stone actually last Sunday, and then I had to go back on Monday. Sunday, my wife could come with me as a visitor. Monday, she couldn't. This was at the Mercy uh, Hospital that's just here in Northwest Oklahoma City. And I tell you, it was a little surreal to be in the ER at this time. And we're not we were not at that time, you know, facing just this you know, massive uh, wave of cases. But anyway, that's a fantastic article. And as people are considering the ways that we can reach out in our community, the ways that we can help, the ways that students can be involved. If you have a sewing machine, um, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. It's a, just a video. Um, and again, that's not creating, you know, met medical top quality. I think the one that you're talking about would actually be one that would prevent the contraction of COVID-19. Is that correct, Jason? Yeah, I, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So that's that, but you know, in, in either case, uh, being able to make a contribution in that way is, uh, is a really good thing. So, and if, if any of you who are watching this live uh, and thank you, we've had uh, a number of live viewers tonight, which is fantastic and great participation in the chat room. Uh, if you, run across anything like that, um, please let us know. Uh, we've got our, our Twitter IDs here and we'll mention them again at the end of the show for those that are listening to the audio version, but uh, would love to be able to share that kind of thing. And what a great example of how micro manufacturing is a reality today. And, you know, in some cases it's going to make a difference for doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals that might not have had a mask to wear. And now they might be able to because of a 3d printed design that, came from the good folks in Montana. There we go. Well, Wes, anything else we need to hit before we head to the Geeks of the Week? Let's do it. Okay. 
Well, let me get mine through here. I have three of them I want to share tonight. Uh, two of them I think I've, I've, I've talked about before, but in my mind, they're, they're even more uh, prominent than they were when we first introduced them first. I, I've read so many Facebook and Twitter posts about people that are having problems concentrating, that want to be able to use this time productively. First, I will say, if you're needing to watch a bunch of junky television and drink an extra glass of wine at night, uh, give yourself a break, right? These are extraordinary times and are stressful for all of us. But something that I would share that it's been a great strategy for me, I too have, have been uh, impacted this. It, it's a challenge to my mental health. Uh, the stress has been extraordinary as it has been for everyone in education for the past month. But um, I want to get some stuff done. I want to, to work on my habitat. I want to make sure my house is a great place to be in case I need to stick around here for three more months. The Pomodoro technique, which is a strategy to work for 25 minutes, take a five minute break, work for 25 minutes, take a five minute break. You do that five times and then you take a 20 or I'm sorry, a a long break, a 30 minute break and then start in on again. It's called a Pomodoro when you do the 25 minutes. It's a great strategy for me to concentrate um, and give myself a little bit of a rest. I also want to remind you too, when things end up on list, things get done, right? Lists are a very powerful strategy. Um, I love, there's a book called The Check Checklist Manifesto, which is one of my favorite books about the importance of checklists to, to do things right. Um, my These are my work lists that I work on on a daily basis, right? Um, in fact, I just noticed that the title of my list this week is This Week in Pandemics. So I've got that going for me, but a list is great. Second thing I want to share is one of my favorite quick screen grabbers for video, but it's not a video. It's an animated GIF. Uh, there's a wonderful tool called Record It that allows you to uh, install it on a Mac or a PC. And instead of recording video, records as an animated GIF. What I love about it is you can copy and paste it into an email. So oftentimes what I'll do when I provide support directly to a teacher or student that's confused about something and it's something that plays well, Right. Like it works well to be in more of a video than it is a flat screenshot. I'll use record it to be able to record what's going on. It, it uploads it to a recorded website. You can just right click and copy and paste that image directly in your email. Animated video GIF in your email. Wonderful support strategy tool. And then finally, a shout out to the organization I, I work with, the Northwest Council of Computer Education. They're starting a series of webinars uh, starting tomorrow. It's called Live Within, or Live from NCCE, and they've got members of their professional development team from across the United States jumping in on topics, especially if you are in a Microsoft district and you're figuring out how to take their tool set, implement remote learning. Uh, wonderful speakers. Uh, uh, they'll be part of the webinar series, and I put the link in our show notes. Uh, that starts tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific. Dr. Fryer. Fantastic. Those are great. Let me ask you a quick follow-up. So I was asking, we were talking to teachers today about Google Classroom. If a teacher wants students to respond with audio, is the tool you just mentioned what you'd go to, or what would you recommend for for, for teachers who want to have students re respond with audio? Uh, there is um, a great website that it's called online-voice-recorder.com. Records it to a, I believe it is to an MP3. I'll put the link in our show notes. And then you can just attach that to, um, you can just attach that to the Google Classroom response because I believe you can upload files. Um, that's the way I would go about that. And, um, uh, also a reminder, um, there are great, uh, uh, LMSs, Schoology, Moodle, 
um, to a lesser extent Edmodo, which is a little bit lower than LMS. But if you start to, to, to like this and you want more tool sets available, Google Classroom and, and, and Microsoft uh, Classroom Teams, uh, those are great uh, uh, interactive pieces. But if you're looking at designing more learning experiences for students and want to utilize something like an audio response, think about LMSs uh, down the road because uh, they're considered to be a little dinosaurish because they've been around for a long time, but they have really amazing tool sets as part of that process. Man, fantastic. Okay, so my Geeks of the Week, uh, I have three as well. First one is uh, PDF Candy. This one was shared uh, with me by my good friend Cindy Danner-Kuhn, who is up at Kansas State University helping their pre-service educators. And this is a free online PDF editor with about 30 choices of things you can do with PDFs, from merging them to uh, converting them between formats to making them into images to rearranging pages to I don't know exactly how the unlock works if you don't have the password. Uh, making it into a document, a Word document, that's the one. I haven't tried that yet. Um, so that we were talking about PDFs tonight and, and PDF Candy which is pdfcandy.com, is something to check out. Uh, number two is that I was excited to connect my Walmart grocery app tonight to my Google Assistant and my, my Google Smart Speaker. And so um, my parents were reminding us because we have, I have, you know, still done some shopping. It's just not a good idea. We are in a great time if you are in any kind of, of area that has access probably to Walmart, but other things too, to allow folks to shop for you and then either have them delivered or pick them up and, and not have to go in the store and touch a cart or, or have a chance of, you know, having any kind of, of problems with your social distancing. So I put that link into the show notes and basically I can now say, well, here, I'll, I'll do it. Hey, Google, talk to Walmart. It looks like I'm having some trouble processing your request. All right. So fail on the speaker. All right. Sorry. Well, that's fine. Normally it'll say it's connected and I can add stuff to my cart and we're going to, we're going to pick something up because you got to sign up for these slots of when you're going to pick things yeah. up. Uh, early and they will expire. But we've got one tomorrow night. And so we got like to 145 in the morning to, to make changes. So I've been adding things to my uh, Walmart grocery cart via my smart speaker. And then I just need to open up my app and, and say, hey, add this to my order. And it's just pretty cool. And then the very last one for tonight, pardon me, uh, is a webinar archive that I uh, I started my own webinar series a couple weeks ago. And last week I did an hour show called Protecting Yourself and Your Family Online. And so you can check that out at uh, designcreateshare.com. And you can also uh, listen to that on my Class with Dr. Fryer Anchor podcast. You can tell your favorite smart speaker, play the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer. And I think that is the latest episode. And I would like to, I just started to play with the new Google podcast app, which maybe I'll do a geek of the week about that next week officially. But I'm glad to see this support for podcasts and being able to control them with your voice. And it is a fantastic thing. So I am W. Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org. Glad to be here again with Dr. Neifer. Uh, tech savvy teach blog.ncc.org and um, just for the heck of it, uh, Montana Digital Academy.org. But this is not just about us individually. This is the EdTech Situation Room. It is the every Wednesday podcast where Wes and I like to talk about uh, news, put it through a bit of an educational lens. We are here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. 
Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central Time, somewhere in the middle of the night if you happen to be in Western Europe. If you can't listen to us live, although please do, we love comments from the audience. We'd love to, to pull people into the conversation. If you can't, go to our website, edtechsr.com, where you'll find show notes and also little tiny downloadable audio files. You can also find us on YouTube. You can find us on Facebook. You can also find us on Twitter at EdTechSR, or you can go to wherever your favorite podcasts are, and we can be right there with them. And if you can't catch us live next time, we hope you'll download the podcast for later listening. In the meantime, stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room.